You got a dead body, Inspector. I may be able to help with that. This winter, all your favorite detectives are streaming on BritBox. Don't miss exclusive new seasons of Death in Paradise. There must be something we've missed. Vera. It wasn't an accident, was it, love? Father Brown. What did he look like? And more. Once you start investigating, you won't want to stop. We're done when I say we're done. Stream your favorite detectives only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Palm Beach was where all the decadent people went. And the Palm Beach police kind of looked the other way. If you were rich and you made a donation to the police athletic league, they didn't care what you did. She approached you to do to, to Yeah, work. she's like, oh, you know, do you need to make any extra money? I'm like, yeah. She's like, oh, heck, you need, you know, like $200. There's this older guy in Palm Beach. He gets a lot of massages from girls. This is a story about good and evil. And this evil abused the loveliest, naive young girls that one could imagine. It's the saddest story of this type in American history. Welcome to Episode 8 of Epstein, Devil in the Darkness. I'm your host, Danielle Robey. Jeffrey Epstein's world of power, corruption, and crime first came to light in a big way back in Palm Beach in 2008. In this episode, we're diving deep into the police investigation that was the beginning of the end for Epstein. We'll hear from his teen victims in their own words on long-buried recordings of witness interviews conducted by the Palm Beach police. Why wasn't more done back then to help his victims? And why couldn't police stop him? I should warn you, some of what you hear may be distressing. What is evil? This is a man who had a systematic plan to traffic young girls. So it's a plan. Once you're at the point of plan, you're evil. Jeffrey Epstein's rise to fortune and influence in Wall Street in the 80s and 90s was mirrored by a growing moral decay, as well as a sense that he was somehow above the law. Here's Stephen Hoffenberg, who was Epstein's partner at Tower Financial Corporation. Together, they swindled investors out of nearly $500 million in a vast Ponzi scheme. When I knew him in the 80s and 90s is when he changed his entire lifestyle and converted from women to girls. That was the time frame that he actually became very evil, very, very evil. Jeffrey Epstein was a man that had a mask, an evil mask that was the strongest evil mask I ever saw on any man before. Now his personality, demeanor of friendship, kindness, gentleness, loving, never got to be seen as evil. However, his misconduct and abuse of the young girls was Dr. Chekhov and Mr. Hyde. Jeffrey Epstein was two people. He was a magnificent personality, and he was the worst 
evil abuser of young girls in the history of America. By the first years of the new millennium, Epstein owned lavish properties in New York, Florida, and New Mexico, as well as a private island in the Caribbean. His friends included former President Bill Clinton and future President Donald Trump. He mingled with Hollywood celebrities and Nobel Prize-winning scientists. And of course, he was a close friend of Prince Andrew, at the time fourth in line to the British throne. Meanwhile, behind closed doors, Epstein had become a monster. But in March 2005, Epstein's whole world changed for good. Here's Florida attorney Spencer Coven. One of my specialties of practice is the field of representing victims in sexual abuse cases. I can tell you that I first got involved with the Jeffrey Epstein cases when I had a young lady who came to my office with her parents. She was 14 at the time, and when she came into our offices, she explained through her parents that she was enticed to go to the home of Jeffrey Epstein here in Palm Beach, Florida. And she was told by a what she felt was a friend of hers at the time that if she would go to this house and meet this gentleman who was a wealthy man who supposedly was influential with Victoria's Secret and new people within the modeling industry, that she could get a job as a model. The girl, no doubt excited at the thought of becoming a model, visited Epstein's mansion on Brillo Way. When she got over to the mansion, it was explained to her that she was going to be giving supposedly an interview with Mr. Epstein. She was excited. She was nervous. Didn't really know what to expect at that point. And after she was introduced to Mr. Epstein, she was then told that as part of her interview, she would have to disrobe because obviously this was for Victoria's Secret and she was going to be a model. Mr. Epstein needed to see what she looked like. So very scared, uh, but nonetheless wanting to uh, hopefully get a job uh, and do some type of modeling. She disrobed. And at that point, after she disrobed, she was then told, well, you know, while you're here, uh, if you give Mr. Epstein a massage, that you can make $300. She was then afraid. Essentially, she was stuck in a mansion on Palm Beach with nowhere to go, uh, no way to get home. She couldn't drive. She was only 14 years old. She was being told by the other girls that were there, the older uh, girls that were 19 and 20 some odd years old, that it's okay, there's nothing wrong with this, this is normal, everything's fine. So as a result, she wanted to just kind of push through it and get out of there. So she did agree to the massage. When she gave him a massage, he asked her to take off more of her clothes. And during the massage, he was reaching out and touching her. In addition to that, uh, he began to touch himself, took a towel off, he was completely nude and proceeded to pleasure himself while she was in the room. She never returned to the mansion, but in talking with some of her girlfriends at school and seeing the cash that she had made, one of the teachers noticed the issue, uh, noticed the girls talking, and notified the parents. The parents of that 14-year-old took her to the police to report the incident. 
The following month, a surveillance operation on Epstein's Palm Beach home began. As part of that operation, investigators not only watched who was entering or leaving the mansion, but conducted what are called trash pulls, examining his garbage for possible evidence. Here's reporter Andy Tillett. So in the trash pulls, there were slips of paper that held telephone messages left for Jeffrey Epstein. One of these had that original girl's name on it, which corroborated her story. Others are pretty chilling. Uh, the police recovered literally hundreds of them. I can read some now. For Jeffrey, has girl for tonight. He just did a good one. 18 years. She spoke to me and said, I love Jeffrey. Another is a message from a girl which says, wants to know if she should bring her friend tonight. And another says, she's wondering if 2.30 is okay because she needs to stay in school. There's more. She has females for Mr. J.E. Yet another. I have a female for him. And then there's this one. He has a teacher for you to teach you how to speak Russian. She is two times eight, that's 16, years old, not blonde. Lessons are free and you can have the first today if you call. This young 14-year-old girl was the first girl that went forward to the Palm Beach Police Department and really began the Palm Beach investigation into Mr. Epstein. Once we started with the criminal portion of the investigation, the police department surveilled Mr. Epstein, unbeknownst to him, watched his home, and watched young girls from as young as 14 years old, ranging up to 17, going in and out of the home. Numerous girls, tens of girls going in and out of the home on a daily basis. And the stories kept coming back nearly identical. Each one would tell a story of being convinced to come out to the house, having to perform some type of massage on Mr. Epstein while he was in a state of disrobe and had no clothes on, and he would ask them to disrobe. He would reach out, he would touch them, he would fondle them, he would attempt to masturbate the girls. And every single one of them was afraid to talk. Every one was ashamed of what had occurred, and nearly all of them did not return back to the house. As part of the investigation, many of the girls were questioned by the police. What follows is actual audio from those interviews with some of his victims. Recordings that have been buried for more than a decade. Again, a lot of what they say may be distressing. Uh, I sit down there, um, she tells me just wait a second. Then she comes back and we put like the little bed for the massage. And then she's like, okay, there's some lotion and he'll be right up. Okay. Then he comes in and he says, okay. And then he's like, okay, just a massage. He took his clothes off and he was like, uh, towel. At any point, did he ask you to remove your clothes? Yeah, and I say no. During the time that you're massaging him on his chest, is he touching himself? Yeah. Well, you know, he started getting a little excited about it and he started touching himself when I told him stop. When you mean by touching himself, you mean he was masturbating? Yeah. Did he offer you more money to do more things? Yeah, $100 more just to take my shirt off. Did you provide the massage with uh, clothing on? All I had was underwear on. She did not tell me that. I was absolutely surprised when I got there. I had nothing. Okay. And then when he started pleasing himself, he got up and he went over to a drawer and he pulled out this vibrator thing and then he pulled down my panties. Uh, it was like a 
stick with this knob thing on it. And he didn't like stick it inside me or anything, but he just, you know, put it on me. Asked me to take my shirt off, so I took my shirt off. So were you in bra or were you topless? I know, yeah, I know from topless, yeah. Did you ever take your panties off and be completely no? Every now and then, yeah. Okay. Did he touch himself? Yes, he was best friend. Okay. One of those victims was Michelle Licata. Michelle speaks here to reporter Marjorie Hernandez about her ordeal. At the time when I met Epstein, I was in 10th or 11th grade. Um, I had a lot of friends. I was really good at school. My favorite subject was English. You know, I wanted to be a part of the, the redneck crowd, and those were the group of friends that I wanted to hang out with. And the girl that had brought me, she was part of that group. She asked if I wanted to make some extra money for Christmas, right before Christmas came around the corner. So she was writing me a note and said, do you want to make some extra money? I was like, yeah, I mean, how do you do that? And she said that she's done it and that you just massage old guys. I was like, okay. (laughs) I was like, do you have to have a license, like a massage license to do that? And she said, no. And then she said, but if you tell anybody, I will kick your ass. I was like, okay. A few days later, Michelle's friend drove her to Epstein's mansion. I remember her just saying, like, if if somebody asks, just say that you're 18. I don't think that they're going to ask, but just say that you are. And I was like, okay. Once again, still thinking that you have to have a massage license. So maybe you had to be the age of 18 to get that license. Uh-huh. You know, and that's, that's the way that I was thinking about it. Once inside, she was shown into a room equipped with a massage table and introduced to Jeffrey Epstein. When he came into the room, he had on a towel and that was it. He had it wrapped up around him, and and he just walked in. He said, there's lotions, and he set, like, a timer. He was like, just go ahead and massage my feet. Every once in a while, go ahead and massage my calves. Go ahead and massage this and that. You know, I was like, okay, this seems to be normal. Like, this would be a massage like any normal place. She would be wrong. What Michelle describes next is shocking and disturbing. He started asking me very personal questions about my sex life. He was asking me, like, how many guys I'd ever been with? Do I have a boyfriend? Oh, you look so beautiful. You just, you look so beautiful. Here, this guy is looking at my body just up and down. It's just so uncomfortable. And then on top of it, putting his hand on my hip and and spinning me, like, do it. Do a spin for me. Let me let me see what you look like. And it's like, okay, but you're not really sure if you said no, what would happen? And that's what I was afraid of, is if I say no, am I going to be killed? If I say no, what are my choices? What are my options of getting out of this room alive? So at this point, I was in my bra and my underwear, and I remembered the bra because it was one particular bra that I ever had, really, that was like that, and it clipped in the front. 
and he had popped it off, just telling me, having his hand on my vagina and just holding it really stiff and pressing up against it and telling me your clit is so hard and I didn't even know what that word was or what it meant. Like, I didn't know what he was talking about. And to pinch my nipples and he was like masturbating. I knew I did not want to look down. I didn't because that was not going to be the vision that I had for forever. So I just, I kept my eyes up and I just, this was the only far down that I would go. And he, you know, just kept telling me like he liked that and to do that. And he just got more grabby and turning me and looking at me with this really, it was just like this really creepy way of looking at me. I just kept thinking like, if that timer could just hurry up, I would really love to get out of here. I guess, you know, he knew that it made me feel uncomfortable because at one point he led his hands inside my, uh, inside of me and uh, I backed up with my hands and I was like up against the wall and he was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, just come back. I promise I won't do that again. So he knew that I was uncomfortable and he continued anyways. He kept going with himself and then at one point he just, I guess, finished and he jumped up, wrapped his towel around him. He said, Okay, thank you. I would really love to see you again. There's $200 there for you. Your number and your name, make sure it's downstairs before you go. And I will call you and have you come back. Michelle never went back. Gloria Allred is an attorney, now representing several other Epstein victims who have brought legal cases against him following his arrest this summer. Allred says that what Epstein did to young girls like Michelle is inexcusable. Some of them were vulnerable for economic reasons, come from homes that were poor. Maybe one or both parents were not available to them. And suddenly... Here is a very wealthy man who's showing interest and suggests in some cases he can help them with their education or he can help them to get a job or he can help them to mentor them emotionally, to protect them. But the person who is supposedly going to protect them is the person who ends up being the predator and they can't protect themselves from him. The Palm Beach police were building a large and detailed file on Jeffrey Epstein. In October of 2005, they executed a search warrant of his Brillo Way house, where they found two hidden cameras, dozens of CDs and DVDs, and more than 100 photographs of girls, some nude, and some whom the police had interviewed as part of their investigation. Finally, in May 2006, the police filed a probable cause affidavit, stating that Epstein and two of his assistants should be charged with four counts of unlawful sex acts with minors, and one count of sexual abuse. Epstein went on the attack, assembling an all-star legal team, including Alan Dershowitz, who had previously represented Mike Tyson and O.J. Simpson. Alan Dershowitz recalls his time on the case. 
I think he didn't think he did anything wrong. What he told us all, and what he said publicly, that's why I can repeat it, is that he got massages from 18-year-olds. If any of them were under 18, he was not aware of it because they showed him false ID. That was his presentation. Then it turned out there were some younger, and he pleaded to one younger woman and one 18-year-old and one 17 and 11 months or something. But nobody like 14 or 15 or 16. In the face of such intimidating legal power, Palm Beach County State Prosecutor Barry Krischer referred the case to a grand jury. After hearing from just one girl, they returned an indictment of one count of solicitation of prostitution. Frustrated at what seemed to be an extraordinarily lenient indictment, Police Chief Michael Ryder persuaded the FBI to conduct their own investigation in July 2006, codenamed Operation Leap Year. Here's reporter Andy Tillett. So Operation Leap Year was to last 11 months and was to include potential witnesses and victims, not only from Palm Beach, but also New York and Mexico. It was, in effect, the FBI acknowledging that this was not a local problem. It was Jeffrey Epstein abusing girls on an industrial scale across America. So we found during our investigation that Mr. Epstein was opportunistic. What I mean by that is that wherever he could find young women, he would seek them out. But whenever he found a good source, he would then utilize that source of young girls to his advantage. So in the case of Palm Beach, he had a young girl who was working for him, essentially getting paid to recruit girls that was attending Royal Palm Beach High School here in Palm Beach County. And by utilizing her, he was able to have essentially an inside person at a local high school to be able to recruit young women to bring them over to his house. So he used that to his advantage to be able to get these young women. And most of them, if not nearly all of them, came from that one high school. A lot of the young girls that were preyed upon by Mr. Epstein and and his recruiters came from that lower socioeconomic community where at the time, $300 to a young girl who could barely buy herself a purse, a makeup, new shoes, or anything, was really a lot of money. And it's all relative. In June 2007, Operation Leap Year resulted in a 53-page indictment. But that was never actually presented to a grand jury. The whole investigation was effectively quashed. There are still a lot of questions remaining about what happened there. Epstein's dream team did what they had been paid to do. A complex series of plea negotiations, addendums, legal arguments, and non-prosecution agreements resulted in this. Epstein pleaded guilty to one charge of procuring prostitution for a girl under 18. On June 30, 2008, he was sentenced to 18 months in jail and adjudicated as a convicted sex offender. This became known as the sweetheart deal because not only did he face only two charges, but then he was also granted immunity from all federal charges, along with four named co-conspirators. Then, most incredibly of all, and I quote here, any unnamed potential co-conspirators. Who does that include? We will be hearing more about the dirty, quote, sweetheart deal in the next episode. When it was revealed, however... Those who had worked on the case and heard the testimony of the teen victims were left in shock. Here's Spencer Coven. Well, I mean, at the beginning of the case, I never doubted 
the stories that these girls were telling because they had way too much detail and information that they wouldn't have ordinarily had had it not been true. In addition to that, coming forward at a young age of 15, 16 years old even, it's a very scary process. You're voluntarily putting yourself into an adult world very fast, making accusations against people that even these young girls knew were very serious. And they were incredibly frightened about what they were doing and the path they were taking. So as an advocate for young women like this who were abused, you know, my goal is to support them and to be there to advocate on their behalf to make sure that their voice is heard and to hopefully make sure that the most important people that need to hear their voice are hearing it and to protect them as best we can against the attacks that we know are going to come as always occur with victims of sexual assault. The victims of sexual assault are always attacked by the people that they're accusing and our job is to try to help protect them. But as far as the credibility of their stories, we never questioned it. It was just way too detailed and validated by so many other girls and young women that had the exact same story to tell, that didn't know each other. You know, it's one thing if you had women that knew each other that were telling a story that may have gotten together and conspired, but in this case, there was no way that this number and volume of young girls could have so coordinated such a story because a lot of them didn't even know each other. And it was all still the same story. 11 years later, those close to the case are still haunted by the impact on his victims. Girls who were brave enough to come forward to the police and were betrayed by the very system that was supposed to protect them. I don't believe that anyone who was friendly with Mr. Epstein could not have known what was going on over all these years or had at least been suspicious of the activities and the young girls that surrounded Mr. Epstein. You would have had to have been blind. Here's Jesse Kornbluth, author, screenwriter, and contributing editor for Vanity Fair. Whatever happens to any other perpetrators, the victims here are all female. They will not be made whole or rewarded. They were given a couple of hundred bucks and sent on their way. I'm imagining that some or many were traumatized and have had painful lives. But ever since then, I don't pick up any phone numbers that I don't know. If they really need to talk to me, they can leave a message. I'm like, I'm so ashamed that I did that because that's not like me. Because when I heard it was just a massage, I was like, you know, I'm like, are you sure there's nothing else to it? She's like, yes, I'm sure. I'm like, is there anything weird about this guy that I need to know? She's like, no. And ever since, like, I felt she lied to me and betrayed me. Next time on Epstein, Devil in the Darkness. Coming face to face with a monster. He had a big grin on his face. Always looked smug. When I asked him whether or not, in fact, uh, his private parts were the shape of an egg, he smirked and the shocking details of the sweetheart deal. Well, his attorneys worked out a deal where he only had a 13-month jail term, and six days a week he was able to leave to go to his office. They never advised the attorneys on behalf of the victims. They never contacted the victims. They never told any of the victims that there were even negotiations going on at the time. So the victims themselves had no idea what was happening.
Epstein, Devil in the Darkness is hosted by me, Danielle Robey. Executive produced by Dylan Howard and Melissa Cronin and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavor Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson, and Andy Tillett. This series is written by Dominic Utton. Reporting by Aaron Tinney, Doug Montero, Jen Hager, and Marjorie Hernandez. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz and Sam Ada. There is so much more to this story, and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Epstein, Devil in the Darkness, wherever you get podcasts.